0: If you've got a Bible with you, please open it up to the book of Acts, chapter 13. If you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles, you can find it on page 921. We're going to start with Acts 13, 13, on page 921. Here's where we were last week. Last week, we did the first 12 verses of Acts, chapter 13. It was a relatively small chunk. Some of you wish it was even smaller than it was, but we spent time going through that, looking at how Paul and Barnabas were sent off on the first missionary journey. Paul would make multiple missionary journeys throughout the book of Acts. This is the first one. It's the shortest one both in distance and in time, but he's just getting warmed up for the bigger missionary journeys. He started the journey with the name Saul, his Hebrew name, And then we saw how he transitioned to his Greek Roman name of Paul partway through. And basically, for the rest of the book of Acts and for the rest of Paul's life, we will know him as Paul, his Roman name. We saw how Saul, Paul, and Barnabas took with them a young man named John Mark. And today we're going to see how John Mark is going to cut and run pretty early in the mission. Last week, we saw how they left Antioch in Syria, which is kind of in the armpit of the Mediterranean there. And uh, Antioch, as it is today, was an important city back then. There was a young but very vibrant Christian church, only a few years old, but they were growing in Christ, maturing, and now sending out missionaries. They sent out Saul and Barnabas and John Mark. They traveled to the island of Cyprus, landing on the east coast, and then spent days, maybe weeks, maybe even months going from town to town on the way across, preaching the good news, what we call the gospel of Jesus Christ, making disciples and planting churches. They got to the west coast in the city of Paphos. They met the governor of the island there, a guy named Sergius Paulus, so his middle name is the same as Paul's first name, and they, after they had to dramatically confront a false prophet, a magician there, Paul shared the gospel with Sergius Paulus. And we were told last week that Sergius Paulus believed he came to faith in Christ because, these are Luke's words in the book of Acts, because he was astonished at the teachings of Jesus. It's such good news for us. Well, today, we're going to attempt to make it through the rest of chapter 13, which is really pretty long. It's 39 verses, so I hope you ate a good breakfast this morning. We're actually going to go through it much faster than we normally do at a more surface level. As we go through it, I want you guys to keep in mind the the framework, the, the frame around this is the idea of the sovereignty of God. That throughout this story here in the second part of Acts 13, we see God as the ruler, as the authority, as the boss over all creation. That he's not taking orders. He's not he's not at the mercy of us and our decisions, but that he is the sovereign lord over everything. So let's let's read through this now a little bit at a time. Acts 13, 13. So this is after they've planted the church there on the west part of Cyprus. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, there's a a shift here. Up until this point, it's always been Barnabas and Saul. Now it's Paul and his companions. This is the sovereign hand of God already evident in our first verse today. God is transforming Paul, raising him up as the premier missionary and church planter of the Christian church. Yep, Barnabas is still there. He's still being encouraging. He's still working with Paul, but Paul is now the one named. This was ordained from before time. Before the creation of the world, God chose this guy Saul, who was a self-declared enemy of God, and he would transform him into a great champion for the cause of Christ. And here is that change taking place right now. We're also told that this guy that they brought with him, this young guy, John Mark, that he left them and he returned to Jerusalem. We're not told why. We don't know if he was scared. We don't know if he was homesick. We don't know if he just missed his mama and wanted to go back. But this would become a point of contention later. In a few weeks, you guys are going to get to Acts 15. And I think Kurt's going to be preaching at that point. And in it, you're going to see how when Paul and Barnabas are ready to head out on a new mission, Barnabas is like, come on, let's take John Mark with us. And Paul's like, eh, he couldn't handle it last time. He he chickened out on us. He left us. And I can't trust him. And what that did is it led to a split in relationship between Paul and Barnabas. And Paul went one way, and Barnabas went another way. Paul took Silas, Barnabas took John Mark. Now they didn't split hating each other or viewing each other as enemies, they split as brothers who could not agree, but would go off on mission in different directions, but still mission together. There's an amazing understory of God's grace and mercy in that, because you know from our discussion last week that this guy who left and caused this split in the mission, John Mark, is the Mark who wrote the book of Mark in the New Testament. And so, as a young guy, he couldn't handle it, and he abandoned the mission, and then he caused this relational distress, but God redeemed him, God had mercy and grace on him, God matured him, and as an adult, Mark is used by God. The Holy Spirit works through him to write for us the Gospel of Mark. Have you ever failed? Have you abandoned your mission? Have you abandoned your brothers and sisters in Christ when they needed you? God can still use you. He's not going to have you write something like the Gospel of Mark, but he can still use you in amazing ways. We see how God is working in Paul and eventually in John Mark, preparing them for the works that they have to do. We see God's sovereign will working out through human choices. Mark said, I can't handle it, I'm out of here. God's sovereignly building them up for their future works. If you remember from our study in Ephesians, the last verse that we memorized together last summer was Ephesians 2.10, where Paul himself says, for we are his workmanship, that means God is making us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What we're seeing in verse in chapter 13 is the prepared works that God did beforehand got ready for Paul, and now he's sending Paul off to walk in these good works. It's preordained, it's pre planned that Paul would become the lead missionary. All right, let's go on. Verse 14. But when they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down, after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So let's get our little, little zoomed in map here. They continue on, they're heading north, they're going to a different Antioch, not Antioch in Syria, Antioch in Pisidia. So, you'll see it in the upper left corner of the map. Caleb, if you put the map up there, it's up by the bold word Asia. That's not what we normally think of as Asia. That would be what we would call Asia Minor today. They're in what is Turkey today at this point. They've gone to this new city here. As was the custom, they went to a new city. They met the Jewish community in the city Paul, Barnabas, John Mark. They're all Jewish. They go to the synagogue, the, the gathering, the, what we would call a church house, on the Sabbath, which was a Saturday for them, and they sit and they wait patiently as the leaders of the synagogue read the scheduled passages out of the Old Testament. And then one of the leaders turns to these guests that he does not know, and he essentially hands them the microphone and says, Brothers... We know you're Jewish. We know you're from somewhere else in the Mediterranean region. Do you have any encouragement that you would like to share with us, the people of God? And Paul, I can I just see the look on his face, like, you asked for it, right? Have I got a message for you guys? This is the open door for Paul to stand up and declare the good news, the gospel of Jesus. Verse 16, so Paul stood up and he motioned with his hand saying, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. So he's not just talking to the Jewish people. There are Gentiles there, non-Jewish people who are pursuing the God of the Bible through the Jewish religious system. They don't know the gospel of Jesus yet, but God is working in them. He's drawing them into the community. And now they're in just the right place where they're going to hear the gospel of Jesus. 17, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. right, so he's zooming back, way back, 1,400 years back in Egypt, 2,000 years back, the choosing of the nation of Israel with Abraham. With uplifted arm, he led them out of it. That is the Exodus story, out of Egypt. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. I like the way he words that, like a a parent putting up with rebellious children for 40 years. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. That's the conquest of the land that we would call the nation of Israel. Verse 20, all this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. So he's, he's really flying through Old Testament history here. But he's, he's trying to demonstrate to these Jewish people that, first of all, he knows his Old Testament history. He's one of them. But also that God is sovereignly in control of each thing. Things. God chose the people of Israel. God placed them in Egypt. God raised them up in strength in Egypt. God allowed them to be enslaved in Egypt. God sent them out, rescuing them from Egypt, put up with them in the wilderness, gave them the land of Israel, gave them judges and prophets and kings. God was doing all of that. He even mentions King Saul the guy that he himself is named after. But Saul wasn't a great king for most of his kingship, so he moves on to the great king, David. Verse 22. And when he had removed him, meaning Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Now, He started his story about 2,000 years before that. He gets to uh, the point of David, which is about 1,000 years before what was current for them. And then he just kind of skips over the whole rest of the Old Testament because he's got to get to the story of Jesus. And so he jumps off from David and he's going to say, now there's an offspring of David. The Jewish people were expecting this. Someday, somebody in the line of David would rise up as the Messiah, the Savior, the Rescuer, Paul's going to tell them about this. He wants to make sure that they know that this is grounded in history, that this is not him making something up, but that the thing that the Jewish people have been waiting for for thousands of years is happening, has happened, and they need to know about it. Verse 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John, that means John the Baptist, had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, "Why? What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, meaning John's not claiming to be the Messiah. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So Paul's telling him, look, there's a descendant of David. Now, we know, and he would probably have to explain later, that Jesus had no earthly father. He's miraculously conceived inside of Mary, while she's still a virgin. God the Father miraculously conceives God the Son inside of Mary. So, Jesus is a descendant of David, but not in the way that we would normally think. He is through Mary's line, but not through Joseph's line like we would expect for Joseph. He says, this guy named John the Baptist was doing his thing. They probably knew all about John the Baptist. He was super famous. Many of them probably had been baptized by John the Baptist while John was doing his ministry at the Jordan River, and they would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for a big feast day or festival. They probably have met and even been baptized by John the Baptist years before. He says, remember John? He was that voice crying out in the wilderness. He was the one preparing the way for the Messiah, but he was not the Messiah. Instead, and he names him here, Jesus is the Messiah. I can see him leaning forward, eager to hear about this. Maybe they've heard rumors about Jesus. Maybe they've even heard rumors about Paul and Barnabas. But they need to hear more. Verse 26, brothers sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, meaning the Gentiles there too, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. He's saying thousands of years of history in the making. The royal line of the nation of Israel waiting, waiting, John the Baptist announcing all of that, and we have the message that you need to hear. We have come to proclaim it to you. That's what he's saying. I love that he includes the Gentiles in that too. And as he builds suspense here, verse 24. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which were read every Sabbath, just like it happened right then in that synagogue, fulfilled them by condemning him. Wait a minute. The story has taken a significant turn. He's talking about the history. He's saying, or leading up to the great promised Messiah. I've come to tell you all about him. His name is Jesus. But the leaders of Jerusalem, the leaders of the Jewish religion, even though they had the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah, they did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They missed him, and instead they hated him and condemned him. Verse 28. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed, Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, meaning prophesied from way before their days, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Now, the thing that really strikes me about the way that Paul tells this story is that this is the hinge point in history. This is the death of the Messiah, where Jesus takes on himself all of our sin, our shame, our guilt. It is that moment that makes it possible for us to be forgiven and saved and reconciled to God. The death of Jesus is the moment in history, and yet Paul seems to fly right over it. The Messiah came. He wasn't recognized. He was wrongfully condemned. He was killed and he was buried. Maybe he went on for hours describing all of this stuff, and Luke is just giving us the summary here in Acts. Maybe they already knew about that. I don't know. But that giant moment, that hinge point in history, it just kind of flies over. whatever the reason for that approach, I imagine that Paul paused for a long time after that last sentence where he said, they took him down from the tree, meaning the cross, and laid him in a tomb. And if the people are listening and they're paying attention, they've got to be thinking, this doesn't make sense. Maybe these visitors from afar are insane because they just told us that the promised Messiah had come, And yet they told us that he was killed on a Roman cross and laid in a tomb. This this is not the story that we expected. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Love those two words, but God. So many points in the New Testament, we see bad news, things going badly, we are trapped, but God, and then the good news after it. Jesus, the Messiah, comes, is wrongfully condemned, is killed, is laid in a tomb, but God, the Father, raises God the Son from the dead. And Paul says, look, they're, they're witnesses. He, he hung out with people afterwards, and those people are still alive today. They are still his witnesses. And Paul is one of those. This is jaw dropping news for these people in Antioch, Pisidia. I think Paul probably paused for a little while after that too, to let this sink in, looking around at the wonder on the faces as they contemplated what this could possibly mean. The Messiah died. The Messiah was resurrected. Verse 32. And we bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, meaning all those Old Testament prophecies, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, so you can go back a thousand years, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Quotes from Psalm chapter 2 there. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, he's going to quote from Isaiah 55 here, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. He goes back to that King David again. There, Paul saying the things that were written about in Isaiah seven hundred years before, and the Psalms a thousand years before, they were being fulfilled, and he is a witness of them in the first century there A.D. The gospel teachings, the sacrificial death of Jesus, were validated and proven by his resurrection. And according to these verses that Paul just cited for us, though he died, Jesus did not experience corruption. We're not talking about political corruption here. We're talking about the breaking down of the body, the decaying. His body did not decay, it did not decompose, he did not cease to exist. It's not like. There was Jesus, and then he died, and then there was a new version of Jesus three days later. Jesus continued, and according to this passage, somehow continued without corruption, waiting for the resurrection. You think, oh, wait a minute. You Think about his physical body, beaten and dirty and bleeding and broken and nailed to a cross and pierced with a spear. And that's not corruption, Paul? Paul's saying, no, that's, that's not what I'm talking. But he took all of his, all of our sin on him, Paul that that's not corruption. Well, it sure looks like it. That's not what Paul's talking about. It's in that Jesus remained fully God and fully man and fully uncorrupted, even as he took on himself the physical and the spiritual mess that we had made. Comes back to that again in verse 35. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, meaning he died, and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption, meaning his body decomposed. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. This is a little mysterious. Jesus' broken body, the wounds in his body, the wounds remained there even after he's resurrected with his new perfect resurrection body. And so somehow the perfect resurrection body of Jesus is still wounded. He shows the wounds to to Thomas. You want to remember that. But those wounds are not corruption. They are, in fact, the thing that makes it possible for us to be forgiven of our corruption so he wears them as a badge of honor we can see the depth of this mystery in second corinthians five twenty one, 21 it says for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of god it's that great exchange that we've talked about before our sin given is placed on is credited to jesus and his righteousness is given, placed uncredited to us. That is the gospel good news. How should they respond to that good news that Jesus was the Messiah and he died, though not corrupted, and he rose from the dead? How should they respond to this that they've heard maybe now for the first time? Verse 38, Paul says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that Through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So these guys are used to the Jewish sacrificial system. They're used to having to travel to Jerusalem or pay somebody to travel on their behalf to Jerusalem, sacrifice animals for the forgiveness of their sins temporarily. And now he's saying, look, the the deal's different. Jesus, the Lamb of God, has died in your place as the perfect once-for-all sacrifice. Brothers, he says, through this man, proclaim to you forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So all those Old Testament laws, all the religious practices, the sacrifices, all that stuff, they were not going to free you. They were never designed to free you. They were temporary. He says, but through the death of Jesus you can receive permanent, true forgiveness of your sins. And how does he say that takes place? He uses the word belief. To everyone who believes they are freed from their sins. He doesn't say to everyone who works really hard. He doesn't say to everyone who just has like an almost perfect track record who is always reading their Bible, who's always praying, who's always the holiest person in the world. He doesn't say that at all. He, he doesn't say that's the person with the best theological education or the best ability to share the, the gospel truths with people. It's not ber- based on performance at all. He says it's based on belief, trusting in Christ alone. If you do not trust in Christ alone, you are still lost. Amazingly, Paul proclaims the invitation to believe, to trust here. Verse 40, Beware therefore, lest what is said in the prophets, again back to the Old Testament, should come about, here's the quote, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish this is a warning. He's saying, look, I'm proclaiming to you guys the truth. Do not scoff at it or it will result in your death, spiritual death. For, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. Paul's saying, don't be like the guys that the prophet is prophesying about here in the Old Testament. Don't be filled with unbelief. Don't reject this good news. verse 42. Here's how they respond. As they went out, as they left that meeting at the synagogue, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism, again, including the, the Gentiles, followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with him, urged with, spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. This is amazing to me. These guys were so ready, so eager to hear the gospel, that as Paul proclaims it and even ends it with a warning, their response is, please tell us more. Their hearts recognize these are the words of eternal life. This man has been sent by God to us to tell us the things that we need to know. And their hearts respond with belief. They don't know the whole story yet, they don't understand everything yet, but they're like, We believe this. They were hungry, they were desperate, they were eager i got to admit, it makes me a little jealous sometimes to think about the way that Paul's received in a place like this. A lot of times in my years of ministry, and I'm 26 years into ministry, I think now, a lot of times in my years of ministry, in lots of different locations, lots of groups of people, I have felt like I'm always paddling upstream. Like, I have what you need to hear. Let me explain to you what's in the Bible. And a lot of times people respond with indifference or, yeah, it's, it's pretty good news, but I got other things to do. And yet these people are like, please tell us more. We need to hear this. We'll be here next Saturday. We'll bring all of our buddies. We'll bring lunch so we can stay longer. Please, we need to hear what you have to say. Oh, that each heart and mind here today, would respond to the gospel message with such eagerness. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. This this is amazing. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So, revile means to, to criticize in an abusive, angry, insulting manner, screaming at somebody to attack them publicly. Now, when Luke is writing this for us, when he says the Jews saw the crowd and they were jealous and they contradicted him, he doesn't mean all of them. He means some of the leaders. Just like it was some of the Jewish leaders who saw to the death of Jesus throughout the rest of the book of Acts, as the gospel spreads around the Mediterranean, some of the leaders of the chosen nation of God are going to work again and again and again to silence the messengers of the gospel. It's one of those ironic twists of the story of Acts, really of the story of the world. God chooses a nation of Israel. He is faithful to the nation of Israel, who works through the nation of Israel. And then at this key moment in history, the leaders, the religious leaders of the nation of Israel reject and work against their Savior. We don't know how they stirred everybody up, how they got everybody angry, but they sure made a mess here. Verse 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, speaking to the troublemakers. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, like you asked for this, guys, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. It's like, you don't want to hear the words of life. We're not going to force feed you. We're going to turn to those who are eager to hear it. We see this over and over again in the book of Acts. Paul on his missionary journeys goes to a new place. He seeks out the Jewish people. He shares the gospel with them and most of the time they end up rejecting it. He goes to the Gentile people and they accept it. He's going to quote from Isaiah here. For so the Lord has commanded us God spoke it 700 years ago, and somehow it's a command to us today, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So Paul's not saying, look, we came to you guys, but you don't want it, and so we have to go to the Gentiles. He's saying, no, our mission is to the Gentiles, and we're letting you guys in as part of it. He's saying, God himself has commissioned us. and so he's understanding these words from Isaiah, that God has commissioned us as a light to the Gentiles who are living in darkness. We are going to take the light of the gospel to them. You have the opportunity to be part of that, but you have rejected it. So we're turning our backs to you, and we're embracing the Gentiles who are eager to hear the good news. Forty-eight. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading through the whole region. So this is great news for the Gentile folks who've always been on the outside. Even if they're a convert to Judaism, they're not like a purebred. They're second-class citizens, and yet here they are welcomed into the kingdom of God. Fully children of God, adopted by the king of the universe. God loved them. God made a way for them to be forgiven, to be washed clean, even though they were outside of his earthly chosen family of Israel. This is amazing good news. They're super excited about it. And of course, the good news spreads all over the region, which caused more trouble. Verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Can you imagine living your life in such a way that the social circle that you've been part of, whether it's work or school or a town, whatever... They decide that they must drive you out of the county. You're no longer welcome in dark county, physically driven out. That's what what happened here to these guys. And God allowed their enemies, his enemies, to do this. He could have stopped it. Right? He could have just struck them dead or mute or something, and yet... In his sovereignty, in his lordship, God holds his hand back and allows these enemies of the gospel to chase the messengers of the gospel out of the region. Paul and Barnabas have an interesting response to this. 51. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I love this little dramatic twist at the end. I picture Paul and Barnabas, they've left the city, and there's like a, you know, the road goes up a rise, and they can kind of look back at the city, and they just shake off the dust from their sandals. Like, we're not even gonna take your dirt with us, guys. Jesus himself told his disciples to do this. Back in Matthew 10 and in other places, he sends out the apostles on mission, and he says, you go to the different towns, and if they receive you, great. Share with them my teaching, and if they will not receive you, then shake the dust off as you leave town. Paul and Barnabas do this here. with A little bit of dramatic flair, probably. So, as we've gone through this passage, ends with, ends with the joy and the amazement of the Gentile people being filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? It ends with this great last verse. But Where in the struggles and the tension and the other things throughout the verse, where do we see the sovereign hand of God at work? Where do we see God in control? Well, back in the beginning... Of this passage, Paul declared how God sovereignly chose the nation of Israel as his own, says, "You are my people, gathered them around, He protected them, He grew them in Egypt, He rescued them out of Egypt, He gave them their own land, he gave them judges, he gave them kings, he gave them prophets, He took care of them, and he was in charge of all of that. Paul made sure that that was described clearly. In the beginning, he talked about the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, and Paul framed it all as God's master plan, that God was doing those things, and it didn't make sense to the people observing at the time, but God was doing those things. It was his plan. He was the sovereign Lord over all of that. In fact, the death and resurrection of Jesus was prophesied hundreds of years before then. God gave hints and clues to what would happen because he was in charge even before It happened. That is only possible if God is really, truly in charge. Paul explained the gospel and offered it freely to all who listened, but many rejected it. They hated his message of grace and forgiveness. How do we explain that if God is sovereign, the ruler over all? Did you catch the explanation as we read through it? It was in the end. It was at verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That is not careless wording on Luke's part. That is intentional. Intentional. That's on purpose. That's the inspiration of the Holy Spirit working through the pen of Luke years later, telling the story, and he says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Let that sink in, folks. Many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It's not that they believed and then were accounted among those with eternal life, but that God chose them for eternal life, and therefore they believed the gospel. If your theology, that is the way that you think about God, if your theology makes much of an individual's choice to believe, your choice to follow, your choice to yield to God, then you may not have much room for verse 48. The verse 48 is in there. You got to wrestle with that. If God is really the sovereign ruler over all, if he's really the ruler over all creation, then this verse makes sense. If you here today have been saved by God, it is because God has chosen you and called you to repent and believe. If you're here today and you are feeling this tug inside of you that you cannot explain, perhaps that is the sovereign call of God on your life even today. Perhaps the ruler of the universe is tugging at your heart saying, I choose you. I love you. Turn from your sins. Trust in me. You are mine. To wrap things up, I'd like to take us back to Ephesians chapter 1. The first song that we sang today, To the Praise of Your Glory, Come Praise and Glorify, is word for word out of Ephesians 1. And Ephesians 1 makes the case better than most chapters in the Bible, for the sovereign will of the Lord. So in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we read this. It's so on page 976. Even as he chose us in him, so even as the Father chose us in Jesus the Son before the foundation of the world, nothing's created yet. God has already chosen. That we should be holy and blameless before him, In love, he predestined. He chose ahead of, he determined our destiny ahead of time. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now if you've got an independent spirit, you think, man, it's you know it's it's all about my choice, then this is offensive. I understand this, but let me encourage you. True freedom. The only way for true spiritual freedom, for true rest spiritually, is if you can rest in the sovereign hands of God. If you're going to try to be sovereign and insist that it's all about you and your choices, you're never going to find rest. You're never going to find freedom. One, one last verse. Ephesians 1 again, this is verse 11. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. If you are going to believe the Bible's account of the God of the universe, you have to to label him as sovereign ruler over all. Even if you only had this verse, him who works all things, even the things that we think we're in charge of, all things according to the counsel of his will. I pray that that is good news for you today. Father, there are so many things in our lives that we don't understand. Maybe we're going through right now or we just look back on it and we're like, I I know you were at work, Lord, but I don't know what you're doing. I I thought I knew what was going on. I thought I was making good choices. I thought I was walking in a wise way and yet everything went crazy and haywire and your plan was completely different than my plan. Lord, every one of us in this room probably has some season in their life that feels like that. And yet, in our chapter in Acts today, and then in these very specific words in Ephesians chapter 1, we are told that you are working all things according to the counsel of your will. So, almost against our instincts, against uh, the way that we've been raised up in this culture to be independent, Against all of that stuff, we choose to agree with your word and say that you are the sovereign Lord over everything. Even when we fight against you, you are the sovereign Lord over us. Even when we, we think that we're calling the shots, you are actually the one who is sovereign over all of us. Lord, sometimes in life that's a great comfort. Other times in life that just really gets under our skin and hard for us to swallow, or that you would meet each person here in whatever situation they're in, whatever the state of their heart is, and that you would help them to first clearly see without any fog that you are the sovereign ruler over all, even over every moment of their life. I pray that they would choose to embrace that, to yield to you, to rest knowing that you are the one in charge of this universe in jesus name